Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, if you haven't met me before or you haven't seen my face on your screens before, uh, my name is Ryan, uh, and it's my privilege to be uh, guiding us through this passage uh, today. Uh, although this morning I want to introduce you to someone else. Uh, I wonder if you know who this person is. Uh, maybe throw your guests in the YouTube chat. Uh, so this person at 22 years old uh, entered the religious life of a monk. And his primary motive uh, was to get a handle on the sins that tormented his soul. He was trying to achieve peace within. And he felt that through strict obedience to the church that he could obtain the favour of God. He took the vows, he fasted, he prayed, he even physically afflicted himself with all the strength that he could muster. He even went on a pilgrimage to Rome and to demonstrate his total commitment and obedience to the church, uh, he climbed up on his knees up the medieval staircase known as a pilot stairs. Um, which is said to have been uh, the stone steps leading up to Pilate's house in Jerusalem. And to quote this man directly, he says, I wearied myself greatly for almost 15 years with daily sacrifice. I tormented myself with fastings, vigils, prayers, and other very rigorous works. I earnestly thought that I could acquire righteousness by my works. Well, you would have been right to have guessed uh, none other than Martin Luther. And the reason I bring Martin Luther to your attention is because he believed the lie that through severe self-discipline and other kinds of practices, that he could make himself spiritually acceptable to God. And he wasn't the first or the last person to believe that lie either. This morning we'll be continuing our series in Paul's letter to the Colossians, and we'll be unpacking what this passage before us has to say about what true spirituality looks like. What does it truly mean to be spiritually acceptable before God? As Paul Council brought to our attention a couple of weeks ago when he kicked off our series, you'll remember that the Apostle Paul was writing this letter to what he described as the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. And one of the reasons for this was to address some matters of false teaching. And the subject matter of that false teaching is what we'll be looking at in this passage today. But before we dive into this part of God's word, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this part of your word. Thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide soul from spirit, joints from marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. We ask that your word would pierce our hearts this day, that your spirit would make these words alive to us, and that by it we would be shaped more into the image of your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So what was the issue facing the faithful Christians in Colossae? Well, as Paul Council so helpfully described a couple of weeks ago, the false teaching that was going around amongst them was not so much a matter of them denying the lordship of Christ or something that we might consider to be overtly heretical. Rather, the problem facing the Colossian church was that they were at danger of believing that they needed something in addition to Christ 
to be spiritually acceptable to God. They believe that they could have a deeper connection with God through various practices or rituals or even spiritual experiences. And now we get this context in verse 16 in today's passage. And although it's sort of halfway through our passage for today, we're going to start there just to see, understand the context of why Paul was writing this. And then we'll continue again from verse 8 and work our way through the passage. So if you'd like to look at verse 16 in your Bibles, we'll see what Paul says. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. We see there were Christians among them who were judging and disqualifying the faith of others based on their religious practices and so-called spiritual experiences. In verse 16, we learn that there were some, some among them who were passing judgment on others, who thought that they were spiritually acceptable to God because of the way that they observed the Jewish religious laws. And again in verse 18, we learn that there were some among them who were disqualifying the faith of others or claiming to be more spiritual based on experiences that they have had, going on about visions, puffed up without reason, as Paul says. Certain false teachers among them had told them that true spirituality or true connection with God could be found in either strict legalism such as obeying specific Jewish eating and drinking customs, or could be found in deep mystical experiences. And they claim that those who refrained from eating certain foods or those who claimed to have visions of angels in the spiritual realm, well, they were the truly spiritual people. However, I think what's particularly interesting is that we don't see Paul here sort of unpack why each one of those things is wrong. He doesn't address them as sort of particular matters of concern, but rather it's the underlying issue that Paul wants to address. So what is that underlying problem? Well, we see here that it manifests itself in these two different ways. Firstly, some believe that it is through Christ plus their religious practices that makes them spiritually acceptable to God. And secondly, that some believe that it is through Christ plus their spiritual experiences that made them acceptable to God. And here we see that the real issue, the underlying problem that Paul is addressing, is that the Colossians were convinced that they needed Jesus Christ plus something else to be spiritually acceptable to God. Now, I think it's worth mentioning now that, I, that for us, it's easy to hear that and think, well, yeah, of course we know that's wrong. Admittedly, we are privileged to receive great, biblical, Christ-centered teaching week after week in our church. And in our gut, we know that that's not right. 
But in the day-to-day moments of our lives, this kind of thinking is always a threat to us. And it's far more subtle than we might think or even notice. I wonder if perhaps you've ever met someone, or you know someone, um, that just comes across as so much more godly and connected to God than you are. Like their prayers are just littered with scripture, they're just poetically beautiful, they're passionate, they're zealous. Or perhaps you know someone who's just super disciplined at, and good at their daily spiritual disciplines. It just makes you feel a bit jealous, like, I wish I was that godly, or I wish I was as connected to God as they are. Or perhaps you know someone who's had all kinds of remarkable stories about spiritual experiences they've had or witnessed. They've, perhaps they've seen miraculous things happen, or they've seen God powerfully answer bold prayers. And you feel like their relationship with God is just superior to yours, like they're on a whole other level of spirituality. And it makes you feel a bit inferior in your faith. I must admit, I've felt this way on several occasions in my life. And it's this kind of thinking that is exactly the threat that was facing the Colossians. And it's the same threat that faces us today. That at times we feel like Christ isn't enough. We feel like we just need that one extra thing, that one experience, that one spiritual discipline nailed down. If I could just throw off that one habitual sin in my life, if I could just get that one thing under control, if I was perhaps a little bit more passionate, if my intellectual understanding of of the Bible was just a little bit deeper, perhaps if my life was a little bit more radical, then I'd feel closer to God. Then I'd be spiritually acceptable to God. You can see how this kind of thinking isn't that overt or obvious. It's not like we're being deceived into denying Christ as Lord and Saviour. But it's in the subtle moments of the day-to-day that we're at threat of being deceived by such feelings and such thinking. And this is the threat facing the Colossians that Paul wants to say to them, beware. That is the context of the situation that the Colossians are in. And so it's no surprise that Paul begins this section in verse 8 by saying, beware of such thinking. Let's read again from verse 8. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul tells them to beware of such teaching that is trying to take you captive. Beware of philosophies and empty deceit that are not according to Christ. Again, it's worth noting that it's not like someone was preaching an overtly uh, different gospel, a counter-gospel that that is clearly false and denies the fundamentals of Christian uh, doctrines. It's far more subtle than that. But as we'll see, it's just as dangerous. And arguably, us today are at a far greater threat than those in the church at Colossae. Because we live in a time where there is far greater spread of information than ever before in history. And this is both a good and bad thing, but we do have to recognize that we are being preached at every single day. 
by all kinds of ideas, philosophies, ideologies, movements, thought leaders, even theologies. Anytime you watch or read the news, whenever you scroll through social media, whenever you're having a conversation with someone at work, at school, at university, or in the community, we are constantly being fed a smorgasbord of different ideas. And Paul says, beware of the things that are not according to Christ. You'll only have to turn on the TV for all of five seconds to learn that our tolerance is the word of the day, or perhaps a decade it seems. We live in what could be described as the age of syncretism. Syncretism basically means it's a choose-your-own-adventure when it comes to religion. We live in a cultural moment where people are trying to harmonise and unite many different theologies and philosophies, all for the sake of tolerance, in attempts to come up with some kind of uh, religion that appeases to everyone. But as Warren Wearsby explains in his Bible commentary on this passage, he says this, We are in danger of diluting the faith in a loving attempt to understand the beliefs of others. Mysticism, legalism, Eastern religions, asceticism and man-made philosophies are secretly creeping into the church. This is the key. He says, they are not denying Christ, but they are dethroning him and robbing him of his rightful place of preeminence. That is what is most concerning to the Apostle Paul. That these ideas which may appear to be innocent or even have the appearance of wisdom, they don't seem counter or opposed to Jesus. But what they do is they diminish the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. It is ideas such as these that subtly tell us that we need Jesus plus something else. That Christ on his own isn't enough. That Jesus isn't supreme over all things. That Jesus' death on the cross isn't sufficient for us. Brothers and sisters, beware of man-made philosophies, ideologies, teachings, schools of thought, even theologies that are not according to Christ. So how then does Paul go about addressing such ideas? What is the appropriate protection or the antidote that he offers against such empty deceit? Well, let's see from verse 9, Paul says this. He says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul reminds them and both us of two things, of who Christ is and who we are as those who are filled in Christ. And now Paul doesn't go into great detail here about who Christ is because he's already done that at great length in chapter 1, that Christ is preeminent, that he is both supreme over all things and that Christ is sufficient for us. And we almost get a summary of that in verse 9 and 10. It's just a quick recap of what he said in length back in chapter 1. But did you notice what, he's, what he says right in the middle of those two descriptors of who Christ is? He says that this Christ, who is himself the fullness of God, bodily dwelt, 
that you have been filled in him. Isn't that just incredible? That the fullness of God that was pleased to dwell in Christ, that we have been filled in Christ. That's just remarkable. And this idea of being in Christ is pertinent to not only this letter, but also to our salvation. I'm going to leave that for Steve to unpack uh, in a few weeks in his sermon on soteriology. Um, But it is a really important theme in this particular letter. In chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, In Christ, all things were created. In verse 17, that in Christ, all things hold together. Again, in verse 19, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell And now in chapter 2, verse 9, he says that you, that is, if you are a follower of Jesus, that you have been filled in Christ. And then from verse 11 to 15, he goes on to explain what it means to be in Christ. So let's read from verse 11. What does it mean to be in Christ? He says this, In him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In this section, there are three main points that I want to pull out that Paul makes about our identity as those who are in Christ. Firstly, if you are in Christ Jesus, you have died with Christ. See what it says there in verse 11. In him, that is Christ, also you were circumcised. Now, as odd as this sounds to us, this would have been particularly odd to say to a church that was made up mostly of Gentiles, especially since they were known by the Jews as the uncircumcised. However, it's obvious that Paul isn't referring here to a physical circumcision, as he goes on to say, a circumcision made without hands but by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This circumcision, he says, is not about the cutting off of physical flesh, which was a symbol of uncleanliness in the Old Testament, but rather Paul uses this as a metaphor to explain that our spiritual uncleanliness has been cut off, has been put to death. Often in the Bible we see this phrase, the flesh, being used to describe our sinful human state. And here Paul says that in the death of Christ, your body of flesh, that is your sinful self, was cut off and put to death. And as those who are in Christ, we have been united with Christ in his death, where our sinful selves were put to death. But to our second point, It says that as those who are in Christ, not only have we died with Christ, but we have been made alive together with him. We have been raised from death in the resurrection of Christ. 
See verse 12, it says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul describes this same phenomenon in Ephesians chapter 2, which was likely written at the same time that he wrote this letter to the Colossians. And I just want to briefly paraphrase what he says in verses 1 to 10. He says, You who were once dead in your sin, following in the ways of the world, living in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of your body and mind, you who were by nature children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love for you, even while you were dead in your sin, made us alive together with Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved, and you have been raised up with Christ, and seated with him in the heavenly places. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not by your own doing, but it is the free gift of God. Paul says that if we are united with Christ in his death, then we are also united with Christ in his resurrection. In Jesus Christ alone, we find salvation. God has given us, by his grace, eternal life. We have been raised from spiritual death and blindness, rescued from the domain of darkness. And in Jesus Christ and in him alone, have we been made spiritually alive again and transferred into the kingdom of light. As 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Which brings us to our third and final point about what it means to be in Christ. That is, in Christ we find forgiveness. The only way that we could be reconciled to God or reconnected to God was for our sin to be dealt with once and for all. See verse 13 and 14. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. At the time Paul wrote this, a person could have been arrested or even enslaved to pay off financial debts. They could also have been enslaved as a punishment for committing a crime. And the image that Paul wants to convey here in these verses is that in Christ, our debt has been paid. No longer are we enslaved. We're no longer enslaved to sin, enslaved to the former passions and desires of the flesh. No longer are we enslaved because our debt has been paid and it has been paid in full. How? By Jesus Christ bearing our sin upon himself and nailing it to the cross. As Ephesians 1 verse 7 says this, In him, again notice the in Christ language, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace. 
It is only by the blood of Christ shed on the cross that we can be forgiven. Now, all of that to say that it is only through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross in our place as the substitution for our sin that we have salvation. It is in Christ that we are reconciled to God. Meaning that our acceptability before God is made on the basis of Christ. This is the foundational truth that Paul comes back to that he wants to reiterate time and time again for the Colossians. And for us today, that true spirituality, or to be truly acceptable to God, has never been centred around what you avoid eating or drinking or what practices you observe or what amazing spiritual experiences you might have had. But it is found in Christ alone. Which brings us to our final point for today, just a brief one to finish our time off in this passage. Because we are only spiritually acceptable before the Lord, because of what Jesus has done, this is why Paul then goes on to say, don't let anyone judge you or condemn you or dismiss you or disqualify you according to these things, claiming to be uh, spiritually superior. Don't be condemned or disqualified according to religion. Why? Well, because these things were only ever a shadow of what was to come. Read with me from verse 16. It says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. As we discussed earlier on, verse 16 tells us that were some among them who were judging the faith of others based on whether they observed and practiced Old Testament religion. And Paul reminds the Colossians that if you have died with Christ and have been made alive together with him and you have been forgiven all your sin in Christ, then don't be misguided, don't be intimidated, don't be misdirected back into the world of shadows. And what Paul so briefly describes here in one sentence, we could spend hours discussing, but don't worry, we won't today, because that's exactly what the book of Hebrews does. The book of Hebrews goes into great length about describing all the different types of religious practices of the Israelites and explains how they served a purpose at a time, yes, but ultimately how they were only ever shadows of what was to be revealed and made perfect in the person and the work of Christ. Let's briefly look at one example. If you've got your Bible open in front of you, flip over to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 to 4 says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, can never make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then jumping down to verse 10, he says, 
But by the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is just one example of many in the book of Hebrews, where we see the Old Testament laws serving their purpose for a time, but only ever as a shadow of what was to come and be perfectly fulfilled and find its substance in Jesus Christ. I want you to imagine for a moment uh, when you were a kid and your parents give you a toy car for Christmas. Now, thanks for sharing your responses in YouTube before. Uh, Rod would have got uh, a Mini Cooper SS, a little toy Mini Cooper, that's cool. Uh, Pete Ransom, a Lotus Elise, very nice, that would have been really cool. Uh, Bob, a Lamborghini Countach, I don't even know how you say that. Oh, jeez. Oh, I don't know if I want one of those. For all I know, it's a, it's a garbage truck. I don't even know what it looks like. Uh, Max wants a Lamo Genie. I, I think you meant Lamborghini. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. I want you to imagine for a moment that your parents gave you this present, this little toy car, and they said to you, hey, one day, when you get your driver's license... We're going to buy you the real deal. Steve, when you get your license, you're going to get your red Celica Ford Commodore, whatever it was. Now imagine you fast forward 10 years, you know, from 6 to 16 and you get your license and your parents being the good and faithful and honest parents that they are, they actually follow through and they buy you the car. And now imagine you go outside and there's this brand new car sitting in the driveway And you go and you hop in the driver's seat and it's all looking great. And instead of reaching for the keys, you reach for the toy car in your back pocket. You just start driving it around the dashboard and having all kinds of fun and going, oh man, this is great. When you're sitting in the real thing, wouldn't that just be ridiculous? Like you've got the real deal in front of you, your actual dream car, and here you are still playing with the toy version. This is the image we should get when we read these words from Paul. In Christ we have the real deal, the fullness of God, bodily dwelt, the one who is supreme over all things, the one in whom we find forgiveness and reconciliation with God, the one in whom we are truly spiritually acceptable before God. So don't be taken captive by empty deceit, by ideologies or movements or philosophies or even theologies that may have the appearance of wisdom, but in reality they lack substance because the substance is only found in Jesus Christ our Saviour. The antidote that Paul offers to those in Colossae who were at threat of believing that they needed something in addition to Christ, 
was to remind them of who they are in Christ. This is the means by which we remain stable and steadfast in Christ. By knowing that we are not spiritually acceptable to God because of who we are or what we've done, but rather we are spiritually acceptable to God only because of who Christ is and what Christ has done. And then who that makes us now as those who are in Christ. A lot more could be said of this passage, but let's leave it there for this morning. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for sending your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, into the world. That you, being the eternal and immortal creator, chose to enter into your creation as a mortal man. Thank you that out of your great love for us, that you died the death that we deserve. Thank you that in the death and resurrection of Christ, we find forgiveness and new life. Help us, please, Lord, not to be deceived into ever thinking that we need more than Christ. And help us, please, Lord, to hold Jesus as supreme over all things in our lives. By your Holy Spirit, would you please remind us of these things and grow us more into the image of your Son, Jesus, and protect us from the lies, the man-made philosophies, and the empty deceit that seeks to take our eyes off you. Help us to walk in newness of life by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll take the opportunity now to uh, spend around 90 seconds just reflecting on uh, this passage before us this morning. Um, If you have any questions, feel free to post them um, in slido.com or any reflections even just in the YouTube uh, chat. Um, So we'll just take 90 seconds now um, to do that. Well, folks, once we were children of wrath alone, dead in our sin. But now we've been made alive in Christ. What a great thing it is.